This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, you're listening to the Redbox podcast with Patrick Maguire in for Matt Chorley for a final day. Yes, Matt is back on Monday, where he'll no doubt be reminding you he's got a book out and a new podcast. In the meantime, we've got a great podcast coming up for you today. We'll be talking about the renovation of Parliament, 80 years since Winston Churchill first proposed it. But first, it's time for today's Economist panel. It's a Friday, so James Marriott's here, but this week he's joined by Isabel Harmon. The Columnists on Times Radio. Yes, India Night is away today, so we haven't heard James Marriott talking about frantically bashing at his column, but he joins me in the studio now. Hi, James. Good morning. Are you the son of a bus driver? I am not the son of a bus driver. I'm not the answer to your quiz question, I'm afraid. If only. One day. <laughs> one, one, day. one day I aspire to be. When this, show, when when this show is still running in 2050, uh, you know, straight to the microchips in our heads, <laughs> your career in politics will be so storied and famous that <laughs> I'll be saying, your dad's an English teacher? Yes, very yeah, there you go. That Get well in. you give away the answer now. People are gonna remember that for twenty fifty. <laughs> Tell you what, some of our listeners, yeah, you know, given the age profile of our listenership. Uh, sorry, I'm not gonna finish that joke. Um James Marriott, thank you very much. Uh Isabel Harbin joins you instead of India Night today. Hi Isabel. Hello. How are you? I'm very well. I am in fact the granddaughter of a bus driver. Yeah. Uh, no way. Uh, yeah, my wonderful late grandfather Harry. Ellis uh, was a bus driver in Tooting. In Toot? What? Wow, he might have known Sadiq Khan's dad. Yeah, he. I think. I think they might be slightly different generations. Uh, um, he was. He was a. Uh, yeah, he was a lovely man who um, died when I was ten. But he. Um, he had lots of um, photos of him driving buses, and he used to go on actual busmen's holidays um, to Seaton to drive trams. Oh, I love that. I love that. Yeah. See, I'm so glad I went on this bus driver tangent and I can talk about buses and trams all day one of the great I don't know if you agree with me James or indeed Isabel uh, the great acts of vandalism of this country's infrastructure was getting rid of all the trams that used to run through our major towns and cities I do love a tram although I'm not 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 as a topic of conversation more as a kind of transport <laughs> experience well thank you for that live uh, editorial decision James <laughs> uh, you're of course right <laughs> Um, let's uh, get straight into it because there's a lot going on this morning. It's been a difficult week for the Labour Party, Isabel, and I think 
uh, as I write in this morning's Times, they've had a reminder as governments over the past five or six years have learned the hard way, and we saw a lot over Brexit, that individual backbenchers and MPs and indeed junior shadow ministers, even when leaders are powerful, if they're all very annoyed about something, they can really make their voices heard, can't they? They can, and uh, I totally agree with the point that you're making. They're also becoming more powerful and also just less interested in uh, being in government and more concerned about what their constituents think of them. And I think their constituents, you'll always have local parties who want an MP who's going to be high profile and who's going to go into government. And some local parties very much select candidates on the basis of the sort of career trajectory they think they're going to have. Um, But it's more likely actually that you know the wider constituency and indeed the local party will ask questions like are you going to put your local area first um and that was definitely the case um with the most recent intake of mps the the 29 intake of conservative mps uh when i got to know them it was very clear that they were sort of local mps for local people uh first and foremost and that they saw government as being an option but not what they were sort of aiming for in their you know in their ultimate dreams and and localism has almost become a prerequisite to even getting into parliament i mean if you i you've seen it up close for far too long to ever want to do this isabel but if you ever wanted to go into politics you happen to want to stand for a party in tooting you would be duty bound to say my granddad was a bus driver in tooting to you know nail your authenticity uh otherwise Otherwise, people would think, well, hang on, what's your link to this local area? Which definitely wasn't the case a generation or two ago. No, absolutely. And MPs didn't even go to their constituencies, you know, back in the day. Winston Churchill, I think, went sort of twice. And, you know, it was just something that that occasionally happened. And people would almost roll out the red carpet when the MP turned up, as opposed to, you know, now you get people saying, well, we never see him round here. And what they mean is, oh, he doesn't shop in my local corner shop. Um, But actually, you know, MPs have to be so embedded in their constituencies. Uh, If they're not local, they're expected to uh, move their families to the seats, which actually, when I talk to new MPs, I always tell them not to do that. I always tell them to have their families based in London. Um, because that's the that's where you're going to be spending a lot of your time and doing working very long hours. Um, and I've observed that MPs' marriages tend to stay together. Actually, they tend to stay together if they have their family in London rather than if they have their family back in the constituency, which you know is a, a difficult calculation to make. But um, but I mean, no goodness, I'd, I'd never want to be an MP having looked up close to it. But some of the lengths to which candidates go in proving their local connections so um when i was researching my first book um which has a lot of stuff on candidates um, and how people get into politics i was told all sorts of stories including a number of i think it was folkestone and high the number of the people running for selection for the tories there one year claimed to have been conceived in the constituency wow um and then you had chris philp who's a minister who went for a number of constituencies and had this lovely picture in his candidacy leaflet of him embracing his horse um and my horse is stabled locally was his local uh, connection so i felt beautiful. a bit sorry for his horse that defies parody my horse is stabled locally james where were you conceived and would you like to be its mp uh i was i think i was conceived and born in newcastle 
Uh, Newcastle. So strong Geordie authenticity. Several parliamentary seats there you could take your pick. Yeah. Um, Whitley Bay specifically. Mm. That must be... You'll know who the MP is, which I no longer do. Is it is it North Tyneside or is that one of the Newcastle seats? I think it's separate. Interesting. I think it's North Tyneside, Mary Glyndon. I'll check. I'll check. I'm sure you're correct. That... I, t- I take you as gospel on this stuff. Ah, stop it. But... You know, looking sort of slightly from afar in a way that me and Isabel don't have the luxury of doing, how has this long row within the Labour Party and lots of MPs getting up and defying Keir Starmer this week, how's that looked to you? I think the interesting factor is social media, isn't it? Is that it's easier, basically social media allows anyone to become an activist and there's a strong incentive for everyone to sort of take on an activist role. I mean, it happens in our profession too, it happens to journalists. Uh, my girlfriend's a barrister, I noticed it happening to barristers and you are much less dependent on the central authority of institution and you're much freer to go out on a limb and build a profile on Twitter, on Facebook or whatever, entirely made up of people who agree with you. And that can be a really powerful thing. And I think that's a kind of new force in politics and something that, you know, the leaders of both parties are finding hard to control and will probably find increasingly hard to manage is the fact that people just have these power bases outside of the party structure or the traditional media. What do you think about of that, Isabel? Yeah, I think I think there's also I've been really cheered in recent years by the way in which becoming a select committee chair is just so important now within politics. And it's a, a sort of alternative career path to being a minister or indeed can still lead to being a minister. So you can sort of switch between legislature and executive. And I, I really like the idea that there could be more prestigious career paths within the legislature because at the moment we just have MPs or or for too long we've had MPs who if they're ambitious and there's nothing wrong with being ambitious and you know wanting to to make the best of your skills if you're ambitious you used to just want to join the government and that Mm. would have a real impact on what you said in the commons on how you held the government to account on whether you actually bothered to read legislation and make sure that it worked before voting on it. And now I think there is more of a culture of taking the actual commons work more seriously. I think there's a long way to go. But I've found it really cheering that impressive senior ex-ministers or people who have thought, I don't particularly want to be a junior minister, have gone through the select committee chair route instead. Uh, James, I'm glad you mentioned social media earlier because that's a concern the Labour leadership have especially on a debate as emotive as this, you can say something uh, on the air, on Times Radio or lesser speech radio stations, <laughs> uh, have it clipped up in a way that you think doesn't necessarily affect your views. You may phrase something clumsily, but then people take your words as gospel. And the Labour leadership are aware of this dynamic. Uh, in my column in the Times today, I reveal that there have been discussions, which will probably conclude in the way everyone expects them to conclude, about Keir Starmer launching a podcast or doing more podcasts as a way of getting around this. You spend a lot of time, your time listening to podcasts. Is what you're missing a Keir Starmer podcast? No, I I pray it doesn't happen because I will be told to review it. I'll be, you know, rung up and said, okay, headphones in, get this with us in an hour. Listen to her, just intensely listen to a lot of Keir Starmer's voice, which I think is not something that anybody wants to do. How does Keir Starmer... You know, you've listened to a lot of Keir Starmer and you've listened to a lot of podcasts. Do you think he'd suit the format? No, I mean, I think it's often difficult for politicians. There's a a podcast by Ed Balls and George Osborne that's Mm. new that I just... It's so easy to become a little bit dry and insidery for politicians. Um, And, I mean, the politicians who tend to work best are maybe a little bit more outsidery. I think that's why Rory Stewart's had a good podcast career, because he's outside chucking bombs in. But, you know, when you've got 
when you're inside the whole system, I mean, I, Keir Starmer's not the world's most charismatic man. And also, you just have a thousand things you're afraid of saying and a hundred people you're afraid of, you know, pissing off. And yeah, it's not very thrilling listening. Podcast, you have a little kind of an- outsider's anarchy, I think, is what is what is required. Or three of the finest, wittiest, best connected election strategies ever, which is what you'll get when we launch How to Win Election with Peter Mandelson, Danny Finkelstein. Wow, and Polly that was, that was beautifully week. done. Well, what can I say? I'm impeccably on message. Uh, and it'll also be a very good podcast. Isabel, would you like to listen to a Keir Starmer podcast? Um, <laughs> if asked to by my boss, yes. Um, I, I think there's enough podcasts presented by... Um, men in politics uh, these days i do think he's sort of he do, he's good at unbuttoning a bit for podcasts actually when he did that podcast with um uh, rachel sylvester and alice thompson i think it was the first one that i really listened to and thought oh i i get a sense of who this guy is rather than yeah sort of robotic starmer um well, that, that's and, and that's very much the thinking you know it's a format in which he's very relaxed very naturalistic and I think even his friends would say he sort of struggles that, uh, struggles with that under sort of hostile questioning. Yes, but I mean, how much hinterland do we actually need? Mm. You know, as I, I, I don't particularly want to listen to Keir Starmer talking that much more about his family. Um, and what could he sort of try a different hobby every week? Could we have like you know Keir takes hardwood cuttings in his back garden and. You know, Keir tries water skiing or something like that. Mm, I, just... I was beginning to see potential here, actually. You, you, you... I'm being so I'm sold on this now. You, you have me at back garden. Keir. My interest was piqued at back garden, and I was sold uh, when you said Keir goes water skiing. Uh, that's a treat. Least on the text disagrees, though. On the plus side, a Keir Starmer podcast could replace the need for sleeping pills. Um, also, two, two texts that are relevant to our previous discussion. Um, this from an anonymous texter. There are a lot fewer men with wooden legs than in the heyday of the trams. There were accidents galore. Thank you to whoever sent that in. And James, I can tell you, uh, the local MP at the time you were conceived, actually, maybe it wasn't him. Anyway, regardless, you grew up with Sir Alan Campbell. I did, yes, as your Alan MP. Campbell. He yeah. is the Labour Party chief whip. And I think was a teacher at Whitley Bay High School when my mum was there. Esteemed company. Right, before we move on, or rather, we are moving on, to this. Now, later, we're going to get two listeners on to play our newish game, Hansard Hoedown. So I thought I would whet their appetites by getting you two to play around. Very, very simple. I'm going to give you a word, quite obscured, not something that crops up in Parliament all the time, and you just have to guess how many times, uh, how many times it's been said in the Commons and Lords since 1803. Does that that sound... uh, Sound okay? I feel extremely confident. No, I didn't feel confident at all. Well, I'll let you reserve judgment until you hear the word. I'll give you both a guess, and whoever's whoever's closest to it gets a I don't know a round of applause. No, there's a special sound effect. You get a special sound effect, and my respect. So, what more could you need? Uh, right, Isabel, I'll start with you. How many times do you think the word flamingo has been mentioned in the House of Commons and Lords since 1803? Not enough. Um, exactly. I. Let's say uh, 12. 12 for Flamingo. James, what's your bid? 37. Wow. Wow. I mean, I don't know why I'm wowing. You're both wrong. But, James, you were very nearly right. Isabel, I'm afraid you lose. Tennessee sipping whiskey. Hang on. 
uh, is that, that's, the, that's the loser sound. I always thought Tennessee Slipping Whiskey was the winner sound effect. Anyway, I'm afraid it's 47. So Jay- I was extremely... Wow. Come on. I'm very, I'm very pleased with myself. I now need to go back to Johansson and read about the flamingos. <laughs> well, I this can tell you, Isabel, I can tell you, the first mention was in June 1886 by Lord Charles Beresford, later Admiral Lord Charles Beresford, who was referencing a ship called Flamingo. The word was mentioned multiple char- times in reference to ships, including the wreck of the Flamingo. That sounds sad. A steamer wrecked northeast of Dover. The first time Flamingo was mentioned as a bird was almost 40 years after its first appearance on March, uh, in March 1926, most recent use was Will Rag and Victoria Atkins talking about an inflatable flamingo. It's been used four times as a replacement for profanity. Example, I don't give a flying flamingo. So there you go. <laughs> I'm going to start using that one. That's got to be your catchphrase. Uh, I think this is your, this is your radio catchphrase. Your I don't give a flying <laughs> flamingo. Now, it's a good job we've been talking about James Marriott's conception this morning because Rishi Sunak's author of choice, Jilly Cooper, says she's forgotten how to write sex scenes now that she's in her 80s. Earlier in the year, Matt spoke to Boris Johnson's former Deputy Chief of Staff, Cleo Watson, whose debut novel, Whips, was described as a Jilly Cooper-style canter around that Westminster arena. Here's a snippet. You might recognise this voiceover artist. His groin is pressed hard against Jess's leather-clad behind and the vibrations of the engine and the bumps in the road mean he's constantly grinding up against her. The trouble is he can't even push himself further back on the saddle or relax his grip because he's terrified of falling off as they whip through the busy morning traffic. All he can think, with his eyes tight shut in the sweaty heat of his helmet, is please don't get an erection, please don't get an erection, please don't get an erection. Well, the person responsible for that uh, remarkable clip, Cleo Watson, joins me now. Hi, Cleo. Hi. Sorry, I'm just trying not to cry because is there anything worse than having to hear the beautiful tones of Mariella Fostrup having to read that out? God bless her. (laughs) Um, It's it's not very um, pre-11 a.m. watershed, is it? Uh, No. Uh, no, uh, but uh, Maria, I think that was the the bet most fun Mariella's ever had on Times Radio. So you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel too bad. How do you even begin to go about writing that sort of thing? Yeah. So my my hot tip, and and to be perfectly honest, I am of course mainly writing about Tory MPs having sex. So it's not <laughs> it's not necessarily like good sex scenes in quotes. Um, but my real tip was to push those sort of scenes off to the end of the day and have quite a strong drink um and that really kind of helped uh, helped help me do it because otherwise again what is it it's not even 11 o'clock it's quite hard to think about that stuff now in the cold light of day so it's it's better later on to be perfectly honest what in in the process of writing it would you ever find yourself sort of cringing or getting embarrassed or you know how do you how do you sort of you know beyond the drink how do you summon that necessary Mm. sense of you know, abandon to, to, to get into that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, so yes, it is pretty cringe. And um, the, I think the main thing is to kind of embrace it. So I think one of Julie Cooper's real skills is that um, it's it can be very, very funny as well as, you know, sort of arousing. So mm. if you can manage, you've got to kind of embrace it basically. And if you manage to have it read both ways so that some people will find it exciting and some people find it very funny, um, then you've nailed it. You you definitely can't be too self-conscious about it, that's for sure. Have you read Whips, James, as a literary man? I haven't, but everything um, 
that you're saying about how to write sex scenes, I think, is, is correct. The worst ones, uh, having encountered my fair share of literary, uh, bad literary sex scenes reviewing novels, are the overly serious, this is supposed to be erotic or overly serious, isn't sex so incredibly serious, everybody have a very straight face all the time. That just is a recipe for disaster, I think. And that's always where the really embarrassing, really embarrassing stuff comes from. Uh, Isabel, have you read Whips? What do you think? I must confess I haven't, but I think that the, the the worst sex scenes are always the ones with too many similes in them, where you end up reading about, you know, the author has just been sort of looking out of their window trying to think of uh, something to compare the woman's bottom to or something like that, and it just, it just becomes ridiculous. Um, and also I think men can really struggle to write sex scenes, even though they apparently think about sex more, more than women, because I think they often write it from the... From the perspective of of a man who's not paying much attention to whether the woman's enjoying herself, did you did you find it difficult to write from a male perspective, Cleo? Uh, not really, because those te- <laughs> those tended to be the ones those characters where I pretended to be a Tory MP, <laughs> um, and they're pretty open <laughs> as far as I can see about their thinking about a lot of this. <laughs> so weirdly, that was less difficult and if I'm if I'm really honest the thing that I found quite useful is um don't don't necessarily read other people's erotic writings and don't watch pornography because otherwise you end up I tried to do that initially and I wrote this like almost it it became like a and then and then they flamingoed here and then they flamingoed it didn't really make sense um the most helpful thing was for people to Tell, like people were very forthcoming about their own experiences wow. and that was probably the most helpful thing to be honest because like I've and not not enough has happened to me to be able to write anything that interesting um so yeah I, I there were a few few male friends who were very kind about um telling me about a few of their experiences very much with a man's hat on although I'm sure I'm not going to name any names but I'm sure they would consider themselves very uh, generous lovers, and that uh, they always had the woman in mind. Doesn't 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 everyone? Um, is there another, is there another book? Have you got have you amassed enough stories from friends and former colleagues that the the Whips franchise is uh, is going to get a second instalment? Yeah, there is. There's a sequel, and it's about a general election. Wow! Um, so that will bring in the Labour Party and the Lib Dems, who are always good for a laugh. The Lib Dems um, perished the thought. Um, yeah, exactly. So it's really, it's really, I'm really going to up the ante. <laughs> that was James Murray and Isabel Hartman there. Remember, you can read James Murray's columns, podcast reviews, and much else besides in the Times every week. Just pick up a paper or get yourself a digital subscription. Next up, we're talking Parliament and how we might fix it. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. In the last major raid of the Blitz in May 1941, Winston Churchill's fears were justified when the Palace of Westminster was directly hit, destroying the Commons Chamber. More than two years later, 80 years ago this weekend, he announced to Parliament that a committee for the rebuilding of the Palace of Westminster was to be appointed. We shape our buildings and afterwards... Our buildings shape us, he said. In our big thing today, we're going to look back at the history of those buildings at the very centre of British democracy and then ask whether they're fit for the next 80 years with one of the MPs overseeing that renovation. First, we'll go right back to the origins of Westminster as we know it today and the symbolic fire of 1834. I've been speaking to the historian and author of the Times Political Book of the Year, The Death of Consensus, and friend of the show, Phil Tinline. It couldn't be a more dramatic story of why this building needed to be built. Um, you know, the, the whole place burns down, or almost the whole place burns down. There are a few bits that survive. But there's one of the extraordinary things about it, and one reason in a way that it's symbolic, is the reason that it burns down. This must surely be the only massive architectural catastrophe in British history that resulted from a change of accounting procedures. <laughs> because for many centuries, things called tally sticks, which I think is where we get tallying from, uh, which are basically dried out bits of willow from the banks of the Thames, were used to record credits and debts because they split in two in a way that matched up perfectly so they couldn't be forged. And these became a form of currency and so on. But um, by the end of the 18th century, this was recorded to be rather barbarically old-fashioned and needed to be got rid of. And only four or five decades later, they finally got round to it. And so, symbolically enough, just in the wake of the great change, the, the Great Reform Act in 1832, in 1834, they decide to get rid of them. And, the, you know, not quite Victorians, but the uh, people of the 19th century looked much less sentimental than we were, <laughs> we are, about the past, and just decided to burn the lot, uh, not preserve them lovingly in archives. So six centuries of stuff is, is going to be burned, which is bad enough, but it's also then burned in stoves underneath the House of Lords, according to the wisdom of the Clerk of Works, which leads to the whole place burning down. So you could not have a more graphic symbol of, you know, both moving on from the old, but also of the folly that can follow from moving on uh, from the old. And then this is all immortalised by uh, Turner, who paints it not once, but at least three times, moving around on a boat so he can see what's going on from Waterloo Bridge, from Westminster Bridge, apparently using the Times as reporting of the events to depict the crowd and the soldiers holding them back and so on. So yeah, it could not be a more dramatic uh, way to begin this building's life. And Barry and Pugin, new palace literally rises from the ashes as a mon sort of monument to this new age of post-reform act not quite mass democracy then but certainly something approaching 
mass democracy. Yes, we're moving towards uh, what, through the further reform acts in 1867, 1884, 1918, etc., take us to the mass democracy that we have today. But in a building which is simultaneously, obviously, new and in a sort of a way, I don't want to quite say fashionable, but you know, by choosing sort of Gothic style, it's sort of you know heading towards the sort of Ruskin kind of territory. But of course, at the same time, pointing right back to the medieval origins of the building and so on. So it, it, it points in both directions, just as the fire sort of was both about the new and the perils of the new. And that building stands for just over a century. I mean, before we get to its next great mishap, let's talk about Pugin, let's talk about Barry. You know, you just mentioned Ruskin and the philosophical ideas behind the building. But is it built on the cheap? Is it, you know, is it thrown up? How long does it take to go up? It takes a very long time to go up. I mean, neither neither Barry nor Pugin actually lived to see it go up. I mean, they both died relatively young. Barry's son, Edward, takes over from him. Pugin famously ends up in, poor thing, in Bedlam, uh, now the Imperial War Museum. Um, but it takes a long time, and yet, actually, the material from which the, the stone they're using is rather vulnerable. It turns out to the uh, the massive kind of, you know, uh, capitalist chain smoker <laughs> pollution of all that sort of coal smoke. And so by the 1920s, there is this marvellously English moment when MPs are warned that they should sit on certain parts of the terrace, but not others, because bits do tend to, for, or at least have once, fallen off the building. So, you know, the idea that it is in sort of a state of long, slow decay is not one that's new to the era of Andrea Ledson. And yeah, and, and look, a hundred years later, just under a hundred years later, bits of masonry still falling off. Indeed, Andrea Ledson, when she was leader of the Commons, her deputy's car was smashed by a piece of falling masonry. I remember Michael Ellis had a family Toyota that was smashed by a falling bit of masonry. So, nothing new about that. But a century later, Britain is standing on the brink of the Second World War. Parliament, again, hugely symbolic as the rest of Europe falls to uh, autocracy, authoritarianism, fascism, communism. And as such, parliamentarianism comes to the fore. People are deeply philosophically attached to it. Is this sort of place where the domestic political resistance to the idea of a fascist Europe is forged? You think of all the famous debates in the mother of parliaments, uh, the Norway debate and others. And that also means when it is bombed during the Blitz, that's also hugely symbolic. Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a film called Words for Battle. It's sort of stirring. I mean, you all, it's almost funny, but for the massive uh, jeopardy of the moment in which it was made, which takes that away of Laurence Olivier reading bits from I think you know Henry V and so on. The nation shall, under God, have a new birth of freedom, and that the government of the people, by the people, and for the people, shall not perish from the earth. One of the first shots in it is Big Ben and, and Parliament with um, with curled barbed wire in front of it, and sort of sense of this is the you know the precious mother of parliaments, as you say, embattled. And the Norway debate famously is what I would always think turns British politics fundamentally from you know worrying what the stock exchange thinks to worrying what people in pubs in Bolton think, because if the population are not on side, we don't have a country in a way that the whims and fancies of investors were held to be rather more important in the 1930s. So Parliament is, as you say, is where it turns. MPs are in fact already meeting in church house in Westminster by the end of 1940 and into 1941, precisely because there is a fear that a bomb lands 
A, obviously it destroys the symbol, but also it may actually kill rather a lot of rather important people. But yeah, so in the night of uh, 10th and the 11th of May 1941, when the Blitz has already been running for quite a long time, there is huge damage to the Palace of Westminster, strikingly much more to the Commons than to the Lords. The Commons is pretty much obliterated. The Lords has a bomb sort of go through it, which doesn't explode, rather like, curiously, what happened in Edward Heath's Hotel in Madrid or Barcelona in the late 1930s. But anyway, the Commons is virtually destroyed. The Lords is, is largely preserved. But what that then means is that the Lords meet elsewhere in another place, as we might say, and the Commons meet in the Lords. So I think there's an additional symbolism to that, that some of those great bills and so on that are introduced, you know, the debate over the beverage report and the introduction of the employment white paper in 1944, the great symbolic turn towards full employment as the core goal of the post-war consensus and so on, that happens in the Lords. And I sort of see the Commons kind of usurping the Lords uh, by consent as being kind of symbolic of that shit. And that Labour landslide in 1945, it's even more striking to imagine Clement Attlee's MPs arriving not on the green benches of the Commons, but it's almost more symbolic to imagine them as they did, as you say, Mm. arriving in the Lords. So once the Commons is blown up, it's bashed to smithereens. The really interesting thing that happens, and I often have to force myself to remember this when I'm sat in the press gallery, It's rebuilt in exactly the same style. Is there ever any debate about whether to redesign it as a sort of European-style hemicycle, for instance? Yeah, there does seem to have been. I mean, uh, Churchill said, we shape our buildings and our buildings shape us. We want to maintain the size, the fact that, you know, only about three quarters of MPs can actually sit down, which is an extraordinary thing in its way, but it lends that sense of intensity and, and closeness that you you know watch all the time and crucially that we have the maintenance of the old adversarial system where you have benches facing each other supposedly two swords lengths apart if you want to move from one party to another you have to physically cross the floor as a red line etc. No, there is some talk at, at the time of having the sort of semicircular Scottish Parliament style design which is quite common in Europe and so on but Churchill is one of those at least who is uh, absolutely instrumental in keeping it as it was. And so again there's a sort a sense of moving both into the future and keeping aligned to the past. It's sort of a conscious and continuous process of pastiche, even as they break from tradition. So it stays as it is, as you say, that chamber that's still in use today. You wouldn't know it was only uh, only 80 or 70 years old. But by 1976, the country's politics are grinding to a halt. And so it seems... It's Big Ben. Big Ben broke down on August the 5th, and inside the clock room, parts of the mechanism were still lying where they were flung when a bearing housing shattered. I mean, looking at the history of Big Ben, it seems to kind of have an absolute litany of woes and troubles <laughs> over the years, largely as a result of snow, um, although also deliberately when Churchill himself died, it was, it was stopped. But no, in 1976, what happened, I have it on good authority, is that the air brake speed regulator, don't ask me any difficult questions about this, the air brake speed regulator, the chiming mechanism, broke as a result of torsional fatigue, which is not unreasonable given it had been working for over a century. But there is something unavoidably symbolic about, as you say, things that we thought we could rely on no longer working, things grinding to a halt, things, as it were, going on strike. The wheels are coming off. Even Big Ben is on strike, or rather is not on strike, as as uh-huh. uh, you put it. But that very question recurs just over four decades later. The question of, will Big Ben bong, as Boris Johnson would put it? Indeed, is Parliament literally falling apart. There's that famous speech by Steve Baker in 2019 when the Commons has rejected Theresa May's meaningful vote for the third time 
due in no small part to Steve Baker. And he says, I wish I could bulldoze this place into the river and raise it to the ground, or his almost exact words. And as the Parliament goes on, you have constant debates over how many billions they're going to spend to restore it. Big Ben stops bonging as well. We're back in the same place we're in the 70s. The sense of Parliament is broken as a symbol of our broken politics. Yes, and, and even the detail of it is interestingly sort of differentiated like the 70s. And now in the 70s, you have this sort of dramatic sort of seizing up. What happens over a long period um, from 2017 is that the chimes are silenced while they sort of work around and do the various different bits of maintenance. And there's always one dial working. There's an electric motor, which is sort of keeping it going. So it's just as the problems in the 70s were kind of dramatic and sudden and, you know, very visually, very vivid... This time it's a sort of more sort of slow creeping sense that things aren't quite working as they should, which we suddenly realise means that Big Ben is not going to bong for Brexit to the fury of the likes of uh, Richard Tice and Mark Francois. And this puts Boris Johnson in a very difficult position. There's talk of a light show, uh, a campaign has started, a crowdfunder has started to raise money, which very rapidly raises six-figure what, sums. What is it Boris Johnson says, chuck, chuck a bob for a Big Ben bong or something like that? The bongs cost £500,000 because... Yes. because uh, very costly bongs. The, 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 yeah, but uh, we're, we're, we're working up a plan so that people can bung a bob for a big bed bong. Yeah, but you can't actually do that because the Commission has no means by which to receive this huge amount of money. It has to be given to charity, just as the coins that have been minted to celebrate Brexit for the first time had to be melted down, and so on. I mean, the symbolism is right there for the taking. And there are even more questions now about the logistics of parliamentary restoration and renewal. The question has been deferred, like many big structural questions facing Britain and the state, again and again and again and again. The cost is spiralling. It's now up to nearly a hundred billion pounds and three or four decades. MPs refuse to confront it in part because they're so wedded sentimentally to being MPs in Barry and Pugin's great creation, which itself is a semi-modern creation and not the great medieval uh, mother of parliaments that they may think it is. Where do you think this goes next, Phil? Because Labour have made so much, in Keir Starmer's words, about a decade of national renewal. We can, as a country, go forward to a decade of national renewal. Can they get away with acting as the party who not only, say, reform the House of Lords, but restore Parliament at a considerable cost when part of the reason they are heading for what looks to be a convincing election victory is a sense of anti-politics feeling. You know, it's quite a hard balance to strike if the public are feeling and defining themselves against politics as we know it to then say, we're going to spend lots and lots of money on the institution you think is the symbol of all of Britain's ills. Yes, quite. I mean, generally speaking, the way to get things done is if the alternative is worse. The problem is that even though there is significant talk, and Andrew Leadsom has been saying this for a while, of a sort of Notre Dame-style catastrophe that Parliament may, you know, effectively end up on fire again or be destroyed in some way, you know, it's quite hard to get that image in front of the potential of it happening such that you can actually use that to prevent it. I mean, I think at a time when you have multiple schools being shut down because their roofs are unsafe, I think there's an asbestos problem in the aspects of the Commons, but certainly, you know, the idea of bits falling out of the roof, bits falling out of the ceiling. It feels like that has to be dealt with comprehensively first. And if you've dealt with that, and if you've begun to get a sense that the public realm as it is experienced by innocent five-year-olds is in hand and the economy is lifting, then, like everything else, all things may become more possible. But it is, as you say, a very thorny little paradox. I'm joined now by the Conservative MP Nigel Evans, Deputy Speaker and Chair of the Restoration and Renewal Programme Board, which is in charge of the restoration and renewal of the Palace of Westminster. Morning, Nigel. Morning, Patrick. 
so how is the restoration go- or going? Or rather, wh- why is it taking so long? This has been rumbling on for so long. The cost is spiralling. It's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. But we've made lots of progress since uh, we've uh, basically resurrected uh, the ambition to uh, restore and renew Parliament. So we've got the programme board, which I chair, um, and uh, we've had several meetings and we've come down from 36 options down to two, one which uh, involves all of Parliament decanting somewhere uh, just outside the estate uh, and the other one where the House of Commons will remain on the estate somewhere during the restoration period. And uh, at the moment, the Delivery Authority are drilling down a bit more on those um, uh, two options in order that they can be presented to Parliament uh, before the end of this year. And then uh, Parliament will be able to debate and make a decision as to whether these are the right two options, which means then that uh, the Delivery Authority will do um, detailed work on both of those options in order that a new Parliament in 2025 will make the decision as to what we're going to do. So um, uh, it, it is urgent, as you intimated from the previous um, uh, interview that you've just done, the bits are falling off. Um, if you look at the Victoria Tower, for instance, it's got a curtain around it, uh, simply because one of the ledges on which one of the angels stood came off and just um, fortunately landed um, uh, uh, in the car park where there was nobody there. Um, and so it is quite dangerous uh, in parts. Uh, and so I think it all goes back to, Patrick, uh, do we want Westminster and the Houses of Parliament to be the centre of British democracy for generations to come. I think the decision is yes, we want that to happen. So this is not a museum, this is a working uh, parliament which houses 650 members of the Commons, over 850 members of the House of Lords, plus a huge number of support staff that goes with uh, the, the work of Parliament. And we want Westminster to remain to be that central focal point. We're not going to do a, an Australia and go somewhere else and uh, um, and then uh, the House of Commons and House of Lords just become a museum. And even if it did, you would still have to spend uh, money on ensuring the safety of the building. So we've made a huge amount of progress, but there's still a way to go. Um, when you say it'll be for a new parliament in 2025 to take a decision... We've seen before that MPs are very reluctant once they get on the green benches. I mean, you're very lucky in that you've been an MP since 1992. You've been a deputy speaker. You've been a front bencher. You've spent lots of time working in Westminster. Do you not worry that, say, this is deferred into another parliament and then MPs again sit on their hands and think, well, I don't want to take this decision now. I, I want my time on the green benches. I'm not ready to move out. The longer MPs prevaricate, Nigel. Isn't it the case that the likelier a lethal tragedy becomes? Uh, Well, that's one of my big fears too, that um, we've got gas operating next to electricity, operating next to steam in the bowels of uh, Westminster. I think I've literally, since I've been uh, chair of the programme board, gone over every square inch of uh, the building. I've stood uh, on the top of Big Ben and touched its face and I've stood on the top of um, the Victoria Tower and look down on the estate. It's, it's the size of 16 football pitches. So it's, an, it's a colossal um, uh, project that we're looking at. And you are right. If we, do, if we decide to kick it into the long grass, then 
doing nothing is not an option. Um, we're spending 1.4 million a week on maintenance of the building as it currently is. Um, as you know, we, it's not that we've not done anything either. The Elizabeth Tower, I know Big Ben was mentioned earlier on in, in, in your piece, um, we've already done that. Um, the, the great fear for me was that the project um, was estimated to be 29 million and now it, and it came in at 85 million. Um, we, so alarm bells started ringing, if, if not the bells of uh, Big Ben, uh, to wake us all up to what could possibly happen. And we've learned a lot of lessons from that. But I've got to say, uh, the Elizabeth Tower is looking absolutely splendid and is now accepting visitors uh, up there again, as it used to in the past. Uh, and it, it's in pristine condition and it's going to serve um, the nation for uh, centuries to come. It's absolutely superb. Um, so we have started doing things, but we are governed by something called the Restoration and Renewal Act, which mm. means that we've got to do the whole thing uh, together. And, uh, and so we're a bit handcuffed, uh, to be honest, Patrick. And so the new parliament in uh, 2025 is going to be faced with the options uh, that I talked about, the two options that are there. But of course, they can amend as they wish. And if at the end of the day, they decide that it's totally unpalatable, and yes, we've all woken up to the uh, cost overruns of HS2 and various other projects, um, then uh, doing nothing is not an option. And uh, we are just going to have to get on with something uh, if we don't go to the full R&R programme. Uh, let's bring in Ashley Dalton, who was elected Labour MP for West Lancashire in a by-election in February this year. Hi, Ashley. Hi. So you're still relatively new to the parliamentary estate. What did you make of it when you first arrived? Was it what you were expecting? It must be the strangest workplace you've ever had. It is, it is quite strange. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a complete warren in there. I still get lost pretty much every day um, because it's such a, a complicated uh, building. But, you know, it's absolutely, it, it's steeped in history and it's steeped in, in relevance. And, it, you know, it's a joy to go and, and work there every day. And were you struck by, you know, as you say, steeped in history, but it's, it's also historic in some of its facilities, its structures, uh, how accessible it is, et cetera, mm. et cetera. Were, were you struck by that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's only one lift in the entire um, palace that actually meets uh, current uh, accessibility standards. So, you know, we've got a way to go. Be, um, before it sort of meets modern standards. And there are issues with that. You know, there are plenty of offices that are used by MPs that are simply not accessible to everybody. It's impossible to get to my office, for instance, uh, without se using several steps. But, you know, having said that, it's, you know, it's a long process. And, you know, like Nigel has already said, it, it's a working building. And just because it's old... Um, we don't necessarily want that to turn into, you know, some sort of stale museum that's just for looking at. Um, what makes the place so special is the fact that it's still at the centre of British democracy and that every single day, um, you know, Parliament is is working hard in that building. And I don't think that's something we want to lose. Uh, so you, you, you think, you know, no matter what the cost or if it can be done sensibly uh, and it's not going to cost hundreds of billions of pounds an incoming Labour government or any government, the House should vote to to renovate, refurb and make sure the building is safe for future generations? 
Well, I mean, I think, you know, as an employer, we have to make sure that the building's safe. We don't want people going in and working in, in an unsafe building. No one's going to promote, you know, propose that we do that. Um, and as Nigel's already said, doing nothing isn't necessarily an option. Um, you know, it's you, we could all move out and let it crumble into the Thames, but I don't really think that's something that people would, would support. I think we've got to be, you know, pragmatic and realistic about it. And there's an awful lot to do in terms of the much wider um, uh, public realm. Uh, you know, on the one hand, we're talking about schools crumbling um, and that's got to be addressed. Um, so I'm not saying let's, you know, throw everything at it and that, you know, it's, it, you know, we, we've got to whatever it costs. Um, but we do have to uh, be realistic and we do have to look at the priorities um, and make sure that we're doing something um, if we want to keep you know, the Houses of Parliament going in the future. And let's just say, you know, it's not just somewhere where people like me go to work. It's a huge um, tourist attraction. Mm. Would it be the same sort of tourist attraction if it wasn't actually still a functioning parliament? I'm, I'm not so sure. Um, you know, it's a great symbol of the nation. So I think it's something that, you know, we can't really underestimate how important it is um, to the country as a whole. But obviously, no. the government, you know, any coming future government's got to look carefully at what's realistic and how we take it forward in, in you know, the longer term. We're not mm. going to, this is, this is something that's going to last at least 20, you know, 28, 30 years, um, even if we did it as quickly as possible. Uh, Nigel Evans, final thought from you. Cut a text from listener Peter. He says, why on earth should MPs debate and vote on the Palace of Westminster refurbishment? Leave the decisions to architects and engineers who know what they're talking about. Earlier, you said MPs were handcuffed by that legislation, the Restoration and Renewal Act, which means you have to act within certain parameters. Wouldn't it be a good idea to just repeal that and get on with something? Well, that's what may have to happen because uh, I uh, agree with Ashley as well that um, having an open checkbook is certainly not going to happen. We've got to make uh, certain we get value for money uh, on preserving uh, our parliament. And I'm going to make an offer to Ashley as well that when we get back for the King's speech, I'll tour her around uh, the cloisters, which King Henry VIII walked around. I'll show her the 13th century statues, which most people miss when they walk into the mm -hmm. historic Westminster Hall where the Queen lay in state and where Guy Fawkes was tried. Um, uh, the, uh, it's just that leaving architects in to make all the decisions for us. No, we've got the delivery authority there. They're going to be properly scrutinised. Uh, this is a huge project, I think the likes of which has never been done anywhere in the world on the size that we're doing. I'm going to mention the word asbestos just to put the fear of God into everybody. And I think each of us, Patrick, have talked to a, a builder mm. when we've had something done on our houses where they draw breath through their teeth when you ask them to do something because you know the cost is going to triple. Um, we've got to learn the lessons from uh, the Elizabeth Tower, which we have. We've used drone technology. We've pulled plaster off walls in the House of Lords. Uh, we are knocking things off to test the, the um, uh, to see how good uh, the, the plaster happens to be. Uh, but this is an exciting project for us to be involved in, to ensure not only that this parliament's going to be fit for purpose for our democracy for the forthcoming uh, decades, but for centuries, people will be looking on this building uh, that mostly uh, has been built since 1834, since that horrific fire. 
and thinking that at least we've preserved uh, this incredible building for centuries for future generations to admire. That's all we got time for on the Redbox podcast today. And that's your lot from me this week. Matt Shawley will be back on Monday. Make sure you subscribe to his new podcast, How to Win an Election, with Peter Mandelson, Danny Finkelstein and Polly McKenzie, wherever you get your podcasts from. In the meantime, you can read me in The Times every week. I'll be back soon. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.